Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, the Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by MarketingForAttorneys.com, helping attorneys and law firms clarify and upgrade their marketing and messaging to help grow their firms while reducing reliance on pay-per-click advertising. Visit MarketingForAttorneys.com today to book your free consultation. My guest today is Frank Thomas. Frank is a legal analyst and lifelong resident of the Pacific Northwest. He currently works for the Washington State Minority and Justice Commission, investigating elements of racial and ethnic bias in the legal system for the Washington State Supreme Court. Frank is a dedicated racial justice and anti-poverty advocate, analyzing issues from a lens of race, class, and power. Frank is also an avid sports fan, having played many years of organized basketball, soccer, football, track and field, and baseball growing up. Welcome to the show, Frank. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me and grateful to be here. I appreciate the glowing introduction. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Frank, I'd love to start out. Tell me a little bit about your work with the Washington State Minority and Justice Commission. Absolutely. You did a pretty good job in your synopsis there, but for those who might not understand what the this type of institution does, it's a volunteer commission uh, that was created by legal order, by uh, court order, by the Washington State Supreme Court. And it started all the way back in 1990, following uh, a research study commissioned by the Supreme Court that as all of your listeners who might be familiar with issues of race equity in America would not be surprised to hear found a, a really stark amount of racial disproportionality in legal outcomes in Washington state and in representation in our legal system. And of course, that's universal uh, to every jurisdiction in the United States and indeed the world. And so the Supreme Court of the state of Washington created this commission with this broad mandate to investigate and eradicate all instances of racial, ethnic, cultural, and minor, uh, political minority bias in our state court system. And now we generally do that through about four uh, main initiatives. First and foremost is education, trying to bring judicial officers and other legal stakeholders in the state up to speed with a modern understanding of inequity and race and the racialization of our legal system throughout history and into the We do some policy analysis, weighed into evaluating the equitable impacts of legislation, as well as working on court rules that might make access to justice more equitable in our state. We also do community outreach to both to, to law schools and, and to advocacy organizations 
and really try to center the voices and positions of community leaders in, in the work that we do. And also we support workforce diversity initiatives for the legal system in Washington state. So really just trying to bring our legal system into the 21st century by embracing our history and where we need to go moving forward in terms of acknowledging systemic racism in our legal system and taking affirmative steps to combat it. So it's uh, frankly, and Pacifico and me, we were law students together. It's really a dream come true job. I tell everyone unapologetically that I get paid to fight racism for a living and it's the joy of a lifetime. Oh yeah, no, I'm, I've been very excited to watch some of your work and it definitely seems like it's you know, really right up your alley and well-tuned uh, to who you are as a person as well as your skill sets. And so it seems like you're, you get a bit of research in there, you get a policy making kind of advising, maybe a little like informal lobbying, like a lot of different skill sets and activities you're drawing upon on a daily basis. Is that correct? That's exactly right. It's at the intersection of, I would say, legal theory, procedure, and policy, all of which kind of, as and I'm sure many of your listeners know, inextricably influence all to a similar degree the outcomes under law in our society. And, and part of, I think, what we try to do is demystify that whole relationship and empower ourselves to make change within the system, working on behalf of the judiciary by acknowledging that we don't live in a vacuum and trying to move past that paradigm to understand the ways that legislation in conjunction with the courts has been used to, to hurt a lot of people and specifically historically marginalized communities, especially black and indigenous communities. And so we're, we're again, just trying to bring the legal system, at least in our little corner of the country into the 21st century. For sure. So I'd love to hear like uh, on a local level, how have things within Washington been going over the last year? I know there's a lot of different stories that get passed around mainstream media, of, but just like with Portland or something like, oh my God, like the these cities are burning down, but what's, what's actually gone on and how has the Minority and Justice Commission been able to interface with some of those different movements? Yes, absolutely. I do. If I do recall correctly, I believe Seattle, my hometown made the list of, of anarchist cities uh, <laughs> in 2020 from Donald Trump's wh whatever covert list he was putting together there. I think we we're on it with Chicago and Portland, maybe some other towns. So we do have that grand distinction. Obviously, or for maybe some that don't know, Washington State does have, and of course, Seattle has a bit of a reputation as being a progressive bastion or a liberal bastion. And so there is always some current of people looking for progress and change, especially as it relates to some of the more existential challenges and some of these imminent crises that we face in our society. Seattle, Washington, for example, has the highest rate of homelessness of any city uh, in the United States. But as, I, and I, I can get as political as we want to get here, but as I, I'm sure many who are politically involved will appreciate, there's always been a tension, even in places that identify as very liberal with what the espoused values have been over the past few decades and the reality on the ground, which is that there are great, really profound, almost absolute racial disparities in places like Seattle and the Pacific Northwest. That's just to say that there's still much work to be done. And I wouldn't say that the state is exceedingly far beyond where we all are as a society in the United States right now. And that's with much work to do, even acknowledging the base existence of structural racism in our society and the fact that the color of your skin still 
has a lot to do with dictating how well your life will turn out. And particularly, uh, the ways that our court system interacts with you and treats you and prioritizes the issues in your life. Most notably last year, that was the issue of who gets criminalized and who gets policed. That being said, I am very proud and humbled to work for a court that does appear in many respects to be leading the charge at the state court level in becoming something trans towards transformative and, and moving towards a racially equitable legal system. Many people have noted and lauded this last year as the composition of our Washington State Supreme Court has changed, that we now have arguably the most diverse Supreme Court in the history of the United States. We have four members who identify as people of color. We have two members who identify uh, in the LGBTQ community. We have the first Native American Supreme Court justice in our state's history and one of the few in the nation's history. And not only is it representative diversity, but these are people who are well-respected in the unique communities that they represent outside of kind of the dogma of who usually comprises the most powerful positions in our legal system and in our society. They're people who represent the people very much. As they say, the times, they are a change in Pacific Coast. I'm very <laughs> grateful to be part of, of that movement, and I'm very optimistic. I'm cautiously optimistic, but I'm very optimistic. And we've addressed a number of great reforms in our state, a lot having to do with trying to unwind a lot of the really draconian punishments and harmful consequences of the mass incarceration era, trying to liberate young people from a system of criminal justice and, and our carceral state and invest in resources for young people and really a number of issues. One of them, for example, is, is something that we focus on a lot that maybe other people don't focus on a ton it would be something like legal financial obligations, which are the basically the debts, the fines, the fees, the punishments that you get going through the legal system. A lot of us know that from something like a parking ticket. Uh, a lot of people wouldn't know that stuff like a, a poor person shoplifting a small amount of goods or something like individual drug use, simple possession of, of drugs could also get you legal financial obligations that go into the thousands of dollars and can really destroy people's lives obviously have an inequitable effect because the inequity of our economy and our society and so that's one of the things that we fight to address because we acknowledge the unfairness the injustice in the system at present oh totally i think it's been pretty wild to watch that on you know on the one hand we've got these sort of reactionary movements towards reestablishing what is effectively like debtors prisons right with whether it's yeah. cash bail or other forms of essentially financial incarceration okay. uh, and criminalizing poverty and then you've also got these states out there like washington and many others really taking on that laboratories of democracy type of approach and really we've seen it at the city level as well and I think like the war on drugs is really probably the most prominent one out there right now. Like we still don't have even decriminalized cannabis at the federal level. And meanwhile, you've got cities that are like mushrooms. Cool. Ibogaine. Cool. Peyote. They're just like, yeah. hey, let's go full bore into psychedelics. Like, well, we don't even care. Let's just move on. And so it's been really wild to see, okay, you, there's still states like you can get arrested for smoking a joint. And then there's other states like you could be tripping balls and like it's totally cool. And it's really fascinating to see all of those things in play. But I think it also is nice because 
as those states do push the limits, it's, oh, hey, look, uh, Chicken Little, like the sky hasn't fallen. Everything's going to be okay. Like we can allow people to do this. We actually don't need to just make money off of criminalizing people for a variety of offenses. I think people get so sucked into the systems that we're born into that people think, oh, this is just the way it is. It's not like naturally that way. This is just a series of decisions, a series of laws that were made at some point that people are continuing to enforce, whether it's the right thing or the wrong thing, when a lot of people just get in power and they're just going to keep the status quo because it's so there's so much inertia to it. But it is really encouraging to see places like Washington and other cities and states that are like, okay, we're going to take a, a totally different approach to how we can run our society. Yeah, absolutely. And to to your point, I, I try to take a bit of a humble approach with this work because it can it can get pretty discouraging at times or it can be frustrating pretty much all, all the time. I, I like to tell myself it, it's a whole lot easier to be ignorant than it is to be smart. And I try to keep that in perspective that these things just have to be learned. And we got to we have a lot of work to do to make a, a more holistic understanding of our society and why there are so many inequities that exist not even getting onto the global level, which you're talking about right here at home. And you're right. It, it's just, we get fed one thing by, by what we see on Saturday morning television. And by the time we're all functioning adults, it's hard to unlearn that stuff. So I do, I try to be sympathetic to, to those who impede uh, the progress and how eager those of us in the activism advocacy sphere want things to change. But nonetheless, uh, that is the work and it keeps me employed. I'm not complaining too much. <laughs> for sure so frank i i would probably characterize us both as prison abolitionists but we talked about a few things prior to this that you're really taking that to another level and i so i'd love to talk about your thoughts on professional sports these days and what is wrong with say sports drafts for example yes yeah so that that's a nice interlude right from we could spend a whole nother podcast talking about abolition theory and a lot of contexts that have a lot of a lot of really major consequences and re require us to really buckle down and have a heavy conversation but i'm hoping today we can talk about something a, a little bit lighter that is still very near and dear to my heart and that's my drive to try to abolish professional sports drafts and so this issue is it's a pet project of mine it's a pet peeve of mine really i i think it's apropos for your podcast because it marries three issues into one the way I see it. And it's three issues that I actually care a lot about. One is just my nerdy obsession with sports and particularly with, with the whole ecosystem of sports all the way up from kids to professionals and the great hunt for the unicorns who are the next great thing that kind of define our generations and our cultures as sports fans. The second one, as we alluded to in the introduction, is racial justice issues. And it's just a matter of fact that in America, sports is a class industry as it is everywhere else. And as a result, uh, our historically marginalized communities play an outsized role and impact in our professional sports world. That's no more true than in the NFL and NBA, the latter of which is more than 70% Black. And the last one is what I would call this emerging theory of law and political economy. And this kind of encompasses all types of things that we'll touch on today, including labor empowerment theory, including antitrust theory, really all legal concepts that look to observe and acknowledge that the economy and really society as a whole 
are inextricable from questions of power, stratification and distribution, and ultimately democracy and authority. And so I think all of those are implicated in a really fun and approachable way with what is one of, in my observation, the craziest vestiges um, of an old world, which is the professional sports draft. And I'll preface for any of the sports fans that you have in the audience, and hopefully you have a few, is that I know this is hallowed ground. And the draft is a bit of a sacred thing for those of us who, who are really knee deep in the culture of sports in America. And I just want to say, I, there, are, there is no bigger fan of draft season and of the draft, particularly the NFL draft, than I am. I spent my entire life just obsessing about it combing over draft blogs. I follow combine performance results throughout the week of the combine. I am really a huge nerd for it. And I think it's for that reason that I should be the one to have to address this conversation. Oh, absolutely. And it's really fascinating too, that we talk about the concepts like labor solidarity. And I think a lot of people forget that even multi-million dollar athletes, even like the A-Rods of the world, they're still labor. That's not capital. Capital is the billionaire owners, the multi-million, multi-millionaire and billionaire owners versus you might have someone flipping burgers or working whatever sort of menial labor job or something. And there's this disconnect that like, oh, rich athletes, like they don't deserve that money or something like that. And so that's just like what the market has said. You're providing, they're providing a service, they're providing entertainment and they're driving way more revenue than they actually get in return. And so it's really hard to like maintain that sort of labor solidarity between what is obviously like a much different class, just because we're making 50 grand a year versus making 50 million over five or 10 years. But it really is still important because I think it's that friction, that lack of labor solidarity across the classes allows capital to really still continue to reign supreme. No matter. Agreed. Yeah. And even moreover to that point, the stratification within professional sports actually even drives that effect that you're talking about even more. And that's a good segue into talking about this first issue of how this is a labor issue. And this is the most transparent problem with the draft, but it's also the one we should confront first. And that's functionally, these are the only U.S. citizens in the country that are deprived of the right to freely choose their employer. There's really no two bones about it. And it's almost incomparable to what most of us in the free market would experience at any time. Much of us, I'm speaking for myself here, I take the first best opportunity that comes up. I'm not one that's picking and choosing either, but if I had my pick, I would certainly get to, I would certainly look into that. And, and for those of us who, who went on to college and, and into grad school, we certainly had this process and, and we were very selective. And ultimately those decisions had a big impact on, I'm sure, how our experience was and how our lives turned out. And so just that that initial injustice is the original sin of this whole thing the idea that you wouldn't get to pick your employer now most people say might say aren't they going to play for the nfl or the nba yes generally speaking but that's almost equivalent to an industry group who pool themselves together for basically for mutual interest stuff right doing things like sharing in national tv contracts and the like but functionally the different franchises of a sp- professional sports leagues are competitors against each other uh, and they should be bidding against each other to try to get people services. Now, some defenders of the draft system will counter that, well, doctors go through the mass matching process at the end of med school and are, are subject to the same system. 
And to some extent, that's true. There is this aha and their hands are, the, their fate is left to, to different hands to some extent. But let's distinguish a little bit as lawyers do. Med, med students actually get to put forth a list of ideal places that they would like to match with. That in of itself is much greater authority than most professional athletes will get in their first contract. But also, many of those top students will actually get their top choice of placement or one of their top choices of placement. So at the very highest echelon, it still functions largely like a free market system where the best people are going to the best job opportunity. Indeed, this is actually the opposite of what's happening in professional sports drafts. And we'll focus on the NBA draft and the NFL draft specifically, because baseball is weird. It's worth its own conversation, but I don't want to get into it. And I love the women's uh, professional sports leagues as well, but the, the scale of kind of the economic stratification of the men should make for a better conversation. Go Seattle Storm. Everybody watch the WNBA, support women's athletics, but uh, let's stick to those two leagues for ease of this conversation. And Pacifico, if you look at, the NFL, for example, right? So with doctors, the, the elite med students basically get to go to their pick of the litter. With professional athletes, it's the exact opposite. If you are a lower rated prospect going into the NFL draft, you actually have greater flexibility among employees. There's what's called undrafted free agents, UDFAs for short. And these are guys who don't get selected within the seven rounds of the NFL draft. At that point, they are then free to contract with anybody who will hire them and put them onto a roster to go try out. So they actually have more freedom than the finest prospects in the league. This year for the NFL draft, there was a once in a generation type prospect by the name of Trevor Lawrence, who went with the number one overall pick as generational prospects do. And he had no say whatsoever. And we all knew where he was going months in advance. There was nothing he could do about it. This also causes issues from a contractual standpoint and from a labor relations in the workplace standpoint, right? This locks in most pro athletes for the large majority of their short average careers. The average NFL player plays for about four and a half years. Well, a rookie contract, depending on what round you were drafted, is three, four, or five years long. So that is functionally controlling the entire career of your average NFL player. Beyond that, the first team that a player would play with is the most important for their career. These are young men trying to grow and capitalize on their unique ability to play these games at a ridiculously high level, and they only have a few years to get really good at the sport. We were just making them pretend that they were college students a moment before. So this is the first time that they can actually focus on <laughs> fucking being really good at sports. And so that, that first team that you join can have a profound effect on the trajectory of your career and of course your earnings as a result. That comes down to things like the environment and culture fit. Is it a place that's supportive of you or that you really vibe with? Is it a scheme and personnel fit? Do they actually need you? Are you a fit for the other players on the team? Does the coaching style benefit your style of play or your skill set? This is all not up to you anymore, right? You gotta hope that you land in the best possible circumstance, but you have no say in the matter whatsoever. And for a lot of guys, Proximity to home is a factor, whether or not they have something that they need to get away from in their hometown, or if they have a really strong home environment and they want to build around. That's not an option. So, and now we see what's basically going completely crazy is that 
teams are now taking advantage of this by selling these picks to each other to trade for the rights of players who are already in the league. And they're selling them off like three, four, five years in advance. It's just become completely commoditized. The idea that you already can claim the rights to basically a placeholder of a human being until you get to pick the actual person that comes in there. Shit's getting real crazy. So what would you say to critics who would say, if there was no draft and anyone could just go wherever they wanted, how do you continue to maintain any sense of parity or fairness if everyone's just like either, oh, hey, we're all going to go to the good weather weather cities. We're all going to go to the cool cities. We're going to go to the best teams, the best coaches. Do you end up with a lopsided league? Do you have other sort of changes that you would make simultaneous to abolishing the draft to better maintain that parity? Yeah. Great question. It's a fair rebuttal. And the short answer, the real short answer is we don't actually know. And we just won't know until we live in that world. But but I think the long answer and my more kind of controversial argument Pacifico is like, if we get rid of this thing, I genuinely believe it will include in, improve the quality and entertainment experience of pro sports itself. Just take, for example, what we said about how a pro athlete's first team is so critical to their success. Imagine how much better teams would function if they actually had to recruit and convince rookie players that the environment and opportunity for them is best on that particular team. It creates a competitiveness incentive in the league that simply doesn't exist there right now. It also allows for more flexibility and dynamism in off-season team building. So there ain't no doubt about it that it, it might lend itself uh, to creating more dominant teams for large market teams to be able to keep their title windows open for longer and maybe keep a larger stranglehold uh, on the league. For one, we really already have that anyway. You got a guy in the NFL, the model is basically uh, half Tom Brady and you have a one in three chance of winning <laughs> a championship, right? So there, there's nothing that you could do in the draft or in the offseason signing season that would do anything to stop that. And in the NBA, it's even more of a star dominated league. Now, what would happen in my hypothetical, at least the way I see it, is those star-dominated teams, let's take the Los Angeles Lakers, for example, would be able to go out and pursue the hot young players, the rookies who have a chance of getting, saying like a, a LaMelo ball or something. And in those instances, it could really work out for those teams. But no, I think you're totally right. right, yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, there's two things that also self-balance and govern within that as well, or actually three things. One is that those players can bust. My team, uh, my favorite team in the league right now is the Sacramento Kings because I was born in Sacramento and they took my Seattle Sonics. So I root for the Sacramento Kings who haven't made the playoffs since 2003. We drafted a guy named Marvin Bagley right before a guy named Luka Doncic and some other really great players who everybody really would have wanted. And if a team like the Lakers or the 76ers or the Bucks or whomever are these big time teams that want, want to make a run at a title, if they had chosen to throw a bunch of money at Marvin Bagley, they would be in the same screwed position that the Sacramento Kings are right now, which is with a guy who's overpaid and, and uh, underperforming. And that would have really profound effects on their ability to ultimately win that title. So there is a sensitivity there. The other advantage it would create is teams who are smaller market teams, 
who would be consistent underdogs, A, just embrace that identity. You know what I'm saying? The Minnesota Timberwolves have never made the finals in their lifetime, and they should just be proud of that. Like if they, and Maybe they should couch their expectations a little bit. I don't know if that'll totally hurt. But another thing they can do is instead of hinting their hopes onto these big number one picks and these guys who they hope will change the fortunes of their team, using the Timberwolves as an example, they got a guy, Carl Anthony Towns, who was the number one pick. They trade a guy, Andrew Wiggins, who was also a number one pick. They, we were trying to boost that league, that team. Instead of doing that, they could focus on like long-term development. They could bring in a bunch of kids every year. Instead of looking to get one number one kid, maybe they look to get three top 25 kids. And that is a different way that other smaller middle market teams could compete while still being able to differentiate themselves from the larger market teams who we would expect would be throwing larger salaries at the higher prospect players and thus playing a more boomer bust style of of business model. So I really think that it presents the opportunity for a dynamic world of sports and different identities amongst the team that we just don't have at this point. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. And I think you raised a lot of great points there. And another one it made me think of was, you know, not as much a problem in the NFL, but of course in the NBA, about halfway through the season, what there's two, three teams that it's like, all right, it, you know, it's let's just tank this. And it's like, how can we get the number one pick? Let's have the worst possible season possible. And so that's clearly a really negative outcome for fans and the morale of a city's like sports fan base. And it's like with your plan, you get rid of the draft. That's gone. There's absolutely no longer any incentive to lose. And then it's you can focus on that long term development. And you can focus on culture. It almost reminds me of you see this economic argument going on now of, oh, everyone's getting paid to stay home. And or if there were UBI, nobody would work. And it's no, if there are UBI, like employers would actually have to try to create a great work environment where there's a great culture, there's great pay, there's great benefits. And so I think actually the same thing would happen if there's absolutely no draft and all you have going for you is the team, the coach, the culture, and what you're looking to do and what how bright the future is, that's then an aspirational identity that every team can take on. And then you can also play up like, hey, Minneapolis, we have great music, or Nashville, or, or Philadelphia, we've got you know great food or great culture or something. So there's yeah. lots of different things that people can appeal to. And I think the other thing you raised too, of the hometown, obviously, the people leaving their hometown is like its own thing. But then I think there is like a lot of people and hey, LeBron kind of bucked that trend of going to Cleveland, go back to Cleveland and right. like actually making good there. I think you'd see a lot more of that because tons of athletes across all sports leagues over the last several decades that they'd love to stay home, whether it's like they're a single parent or they, they care for a, an elder uh, or something like that. And it's like a really strong bond. And it's like, no, sorry, you're going to Jacksonville. And they're like, no, well, I want to stay in Detroit. Like, what the fuck? And I think there's a lot of dynamics around that that would be really cool. And I think that just like makes for a better story. You think about programs like NBA Cares, right? I think NBA Cares would be, they do a lot of great work, but I think they could do even better work if everyone was like, say, allowed to stay in their hometown or the closest big city or just a city they really love so that You'd have, I think, across the board, like much greater player happiness, right? Because 
how many people are absolutely miserable because they're drafted by the Cleveland Browns or, you know, whatever team it yep. is. And especially in obviously the NFL is its own problem because if you're the worst team in the NFL, you're, and especially you're almost always drafting a quarterback, probably 50 to 80% of the time with that first pick, depending on the year. But it often you're putting a quarterback, a, a really dynamic quarterback, usually like a Trevor Lawrence or someone like that with a terrible team, with a terrible offensive line where they just get destroyed constantly. Or you put a star basketball player with the absolute worst team in the league or a team that's been tanking. They didn't spend any money on free agency. So like the team is terrible. And then it's just, okay, now you're going to win 15 games and start hating basketball and hating your life. And instead we could actually make a sports league built off like implicit, like health and wellness and happiness and like, actually take care of players mental health i can't even imagine like how just how much better that would be for overall well-being for people to like the 95 of the time be where they want because obviously you're gonna have outliers just you take what you think is your dream job and then it turns out it sucks <laughs> you know or the boss sucks or something about yeah. it sucks but with this it's like just having that freedom and i think there's other things that could be done to even loosen up free agency because even the draft is its own vestige before when there was absolutely no free agency and it was like everyone was just literally owned by a team which is obviously even more fucked up than what we have now but it's like, yeah like the best it's just a vestige of that old dynamic because even like free agency now it's you've got stuff like tampering and other things and it's like, who cares who cares if chris bosh and Dwayne wade are and lebron james are like hey let's all go party together in South Beach. Who cares? I'm going to create a better product and let people just build cool cultures. And But I think a lot of that, of course, is like just to disempower the players themselves. It's just another measure of control. It's just saying, nope, you are the labor. You don't get a say. But like how asinine, you know, if you apply, just like pretty much anything else in this conversation, if you apply that to like the regular business world, right? Like how asinine would it be for like you're in high school and you and your friends are like working at Pizza Hut and then you guys are all like, hey, let's go work at Domino's. And then you could get sued or like otherwise get in trouble because you guys all colluded together to now go down the street and work at Domino's. Yeah. That's well, functionally stupid to us, but like in the sports world, that's how it is. That's just another day. And even it, it, it's even crazier if you think about it because the players, and this is what all, you're totally right about this. Abolishing the draft would reconcile what, what Bill Simmons calls the player empowerment era. And he says it, says it pejoratively, but I'm all about player empowerment and the reason it's like old traditional curmudgeons like Bill Simmons don't like it is because players keep leaving the team that drafts them because they don't want to play for them. But even to use your analogy, it's not even as though it's like the, so the employees are allowed to collude basically, which is one of the crazy. And so when you have a person like LeBron James, who basically runs whatever franchise he's on, He's allowed to collude, but then the poor little, the tiny little small market team can't like reach out to somebody early to try to convince them to join. It's completely ridiculous. You're right. But so it, it would literally be equivalent of if you were working for Domino's and Pizza Hut called you to hire you and give you a raise. And then they were like, that's illegal Pizza Hut. They'd be like, what the fuck? This really gets to the one reason I would hope that players would want to leave a team and cannot now or want to be selective about who the first team is. That's the elephant in the room of this whole conversation is to not play for a fucking racist owner, right, Pacifico? 
like these are like I said in the beginning, the the NBA is seventy percent uh, black players. The NFL is a plurality of black players. They comprise the most of any uh, one race in the NFL. There is literally one black owner combined of the 62 franchises in the NBA and NFL. And that person is literally Michael fucking Jordan, Pacifico. You have to be the greatest athlete in the history of the world to be a black (laughs) sports owner in America. So, but that's not only the half of it. So in the wake of of the George murder and then the demonstrations that followed in the summer of 2020, a lot of pro athletes started to think about utilizing their platform and their power differently in the push for racial justice. But at the same time, when that summer got out, a lot of them had to go and suit up to play another season for an owner who opposes everything that they had spent their summer advocating for and actually are ardent supporters of right-wing racist political causes. I know for a fact that at least six NFL owners were known major donors to both of Donald Trump's two presidential campaigns, 2016 and 2020. Woody Johnson of the Jets, who had the second overall pick, but does appear to have selected a racist kid, so that's good, was the ambassador to the UK under Donald Trump because he paid a pretty enough price. Uh, Famed owner Bob Kraft of the Patriots, uh, who somehow has become friends with Jay-Z and Meek Mill, is a big-time Trump supporter. Shad Khan, who got the number one pick and cashed in on generational talent Trevor Lawrence of the Jaguars, is a Trump donor. Bob McNair of the Texans, who famously a couple years ago said they <laughs> you can't have the inmates running the surprise, surprise, is a Trump donor. And Stephen Roth of the Dolphins, a Trump donor also. Oh, and can't forget America's team, Jerry Jones of the Dallas Cowboys, also a known Trump donor. All these guys have basically total control over the seminal portion of some of our most influential and visible black celebrities' lives. And it's really just a bitch. It's really a bitch. Now, I can't speak for these guys on whether or not that we a deciding factor in what they did with their lives. I just know they don't have any fucking choice now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because even like once you're under contract and just the whether it's a restricted free agency, unrestricted, all the different contract options you might have on you. It's just, it's so restrictive. And especially when you're talking about the NBA, usually can be a little bit younger and you're talking 19, 20, 21, 22 to you know, 25 year old kids signing contracts. I remember signing contracts for hundred grand in student loans when I, back when I was 18 and like, it was monopoly money. Yeah. I was like, Oh, you're not going to ask for this back. Like you just have right. no idea. You're just getting it. And especially when you're taking kids that like have literally barely ever had two dimes, so like two nickels to rub together or whatever. And then yeah. you're like, here's five, $10 million. Just, yeah. Okay. Sure. And you just sign and you have no idea necessarily what you're getting into, let alone like how to necessarily manage money. The owners aren't like going to teach anyone financial literacy because they're just like, oh, the less that you know about how to, you know, conduct yourself with this amount of money and in this business world, then like the more we can take advantage of you. So even if they are making any sort of like inroads to like professing to help people that are often living like paycheck to paycheck, they're making millions of dollars, which a lot of you know poorer people like have no understanding of how that can even be done. But especially it's like once you just out of nowhere start making this amount of money, 
you get all kinds of people come out of the woodwork and it's, oh, then you got, you know, cousins you've never heard of and all these people like asking you for money and, or you have just like large families and, and extended families to support and stuff. So there's so many different dynamics that it just keeps, you look at the number of people that leave professional sports with severe brain trauma and no money. And it's just, it's to me, it's like basically criminal because it's really just exploiting in a way that most labor won't sympathize with because you made millions of dollars, but you gave your body just as much as a coal miner did, if not worse, just because of the head trauma and other things. And maybe like coal mining, you're giving up your lungs or something like that. But yeah, it's crazy. Just like all the different like exploitative practices that exist. And most labor doesn't really care because you're making $10,000 a day versus 10 bucks an hour or something. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it, it requires looking at it. What I would say would be from an intersectional lens or from a radical black lens to really have a full appreciation for it. Because if I think if it was just your run-of-the-mill celebrity, I wouldn't be on here talking about it and it wouldn't grind my gear so much, even though the unfairness would still be, would be there to discuss. But what really gives it, I think it's evil legs, is this is a racism issue. And this is taking, again, like our most visible and rightly or wrongly most influential public figures in Black America, and it takes away their most seminal autonomy. And it, beyond having the real tangible effects that we've described, having to play for toxic organizations, having basically the entirety of the average career being under the control of one team, having that affect your playing and then your ultimate market value even after you could get away from that team. In addition to that, it just has a, it has a signaling effect, right, to the rest of us in society that these stars, these absolutely transcendent stars who make up themselves the very concepts that we hold dear. Basketball is nothing without LeBron James and Kevin Durant and Stephen Curry. They are the sport. They're so much more the sport than an arena or a logo or an ownership or a personnel decision could ever be. And, and so it signals to the rest of us that they might be the most important. They're not in control. And I think that has an effect that resonates throughout their ability to make change and make an impact on the rest of our society. And, and I think these owners, whether or not they thought about it explicitly or not, they all appreciate that a, a tide shifts if they let this one kind of firewall down. And like to your point, it's an earlier point. We talk about ways, yeah, there's a lot of people who are unsympathetic and will talk about ways that it's actually all right. And I hope that we've debunked like at least a few of those. But I think the core one is like any idea that they can make this up on the back end or that this is only the first go around and, and they'll have the world as their oyster when they get to free agency or become a, a, a mid-career veteran is frankly bullshit. And, and if anybody takes anything away from this, I, I hope maybe it's that, that again, the average NFL career is about four and a half years. If you get drafted in the first round, one of the first 32 picks in the NFL draft, one of the greatest honors you could have, they give you a mandatory four-year contract. They give the team an option for a fifth year. Then the team has can do what's called a franchise tag, where they pay you uh, a, a top five aggregated rate at your position, and they can do that without asking you for a year, and then a year, and then a year. And next thing you know, you look up and they have seven or eight years of your of control before you ever have the right to freely contract in that league. And I tell you what, 
just like you said, with the way the absolutely brutal beating that an NFL player takes, if you've made it so far as seven years in your career, you're a great player. You're a success. And so it to me, it really like paints the picture that this is absolute control, as large as it functions. And the way that some of the greatest players are fighting back, what we call the player empowerment era that started with LeBron's famous quote, I'm taking my talents to South Beach. All of that can be reconciled by by just letting them do this from the jump and then holding the players to account for the relationships that they build and the decisions that they make and the commitments that they make to organizations as well. But at present, they didn't ask for none of this. And so I don't blame them when they want to like hop towns, jump ship, go over to Brooklyn together with the three of them and play for a team that has no fans and win a championship. I, I don't blame them. Yeah, it's, a, it's definitely hard to blame them in that situation. And Yes, there's just so many different dynamics. I was just thinking about even like the funding of stadiums because it's like at the same time, hey, why couldn't the players just secretly get together and even any of the players associations just be like, hey, let's just get out of here. Let's just let's go start our own league there. All these stadiums exist like they're just on lease agreements or they're largely paid for by city taxpayers and stuff. And so there's just like, why not create a better future for this? Or like how much can athletes be empowered enough to stand up and, and fight back against it? Because I think a lot of it is like the almost like Stockholm syndrome of it. It's just, oh, this is just how it is. And people would say things like, oh, you, it's an honor to play in a professional sports league. So sit down and shut up. Don't screw it up. But at the same time, it's should people really be taking like, that kind of abuse to actually be able to play sports and stuff and so there's always going to be that tension and there's always going to be embittered fans and owners and everyone else besides the athletes that really it's like they're not the ones sacrificing the primes of their lives for this and just sort of like looking forward of okay like how can we build better sports leagues in the future how can we change what we have now and i think so much of it does just come down to like player empowerment if we empowered players more of course is the last thing that owners want but if we actually do that it's going to be a better product and just if you're like looking to adopt corporate social responsibility and sustainability as a company it's actually better for your bottom line in the long run and i think the same would be true of yeah you might not want to empower athletes but it's actually going to make her better the legal players be happier the league would probably be more popular and yeah, you might have to do more to keep athletes happy, but ultimately it's going to work out better for everyone. But it's asking anyone with absolute power to give up some of that power is always like a pretty big uphill battle. Yep, facts. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court has not been a big aid in this. They haven't addressed the draft distinctly in of itself, but they got basically close in the 70s. And as you can imagine, ruled against it. And that probably isn't going anywhere with the modern day composition of the U.S. Supreme Court. There's a lot of fighting to do and a lot of persuading on a lot of fronts. It's really the draft. It's such a benign thing. I don't think a lot of people think of it, even sports fans. But I think one of the reasons it was a cool topic for your podcast is it represents it represents a, a nice case study in the way that a whole lot of different societal functions uh, that we don't necessarily think about every day come together to to make something that, if you think about it, is fucked up, but also is uh, kind of a mainstay fixture in, in all of our lives. And it's taken me, like I said, really a lifetime of honestly loving draft media and the draft prospect and the idea 
of finding the next great thing and, and mm-hmm. learning about all these prospective rookie players for decades to really come to have an appreciation that, you know, that it, the injustice aside, it also fucks things up that they pick this extremely arbitrary system where the worst fucking teams get to pick the best fucking players. And that's really all uh, that anyone thinks about. And, and it constrains our whole world of thought. Like, I love draft day media. I love reading blogs about this stuff. I am a total nerd. I am a total nerd for this subject. And I'm tired of just reading about, oh, it's going to pick so-and-so at number two, so-and-so is going to pick so-and-so at number three. It constrains the whole way we look at these things. And that has uh, a dehumanizing effect. I think it like is representative of the ways we objectify and dehumanize our celebrities and no so no more so than our athletes and obviously that's got a racial component to it it's a lot it's it's just shockingly easy for some americans to really dehumanize black athletes and celebrities even more than we see in other fields it's the uphill battle i really think the only way that that we're ever going to get rid of this damn draft is if enough fans are like hey get rid of this damn draft and that's probably the biggest power that could persuade them. If it looks like their dollars might be challenged by this, or it looks like they can make more dollars otherwise, that's probably the only way to get them to change it. Yeah, actually, I was just thinking that because before, obviously, like I've, I haven't watched the NFL since Kaepernick got blackballed. But prior to that, I love the draft too. It's always exciting, especially coming out of Notre Dame and seeing friends and classmates and other people get drafted. And I, I was watching it from when I was a kid, watching Notre Dame football and always seeing every Notre Dame class that would get drafted in and everything. I loved all that, right? So it was just like years and years. It was always a big thing, even just at Notre Dame, like draft day, have huge parties and stuff. It's an all-day, a multi-day event or whatever. So we went to multi-day drafts and stuff. And uh, I, I loved all of that. And then I was thinking like, okay, okay, so we get rid of that. Then what then? And then it's, wait a minute. Then it would actually, you get rid of the draft industrial complex, but then imagine we have a 30, 60, 90 day period in which every single team and every single city and fan base is like trying to woo different players. Like that would be so cool. Like you could be having people just throwing massive parties and there'd be so much economic development. You got cities writing like love letters to certain players you got like everyone just like, oh, okay come here or this is the hometown kid yep. or something like that you have so yep. many like dope events and then every every team's got to be like really making a push and then you get the players involved and you get the whole team involved you get the the whole city involved and man i think that would just be like such a cool party and a way cooler event like an imagine just having media days for that like every, over right. the course of a month and it's like, okay bye we're going to start on March 1st and then by June 1st, you got to sign with a team, right? Or if you don't sign with the team by then, there's you can only sign X contract or something. You just put different parameters in place or something. So there's some incentive. And then it's just, you get 90 days, like nobody knows what's going to happen. And then it's just, yeah. oh my God, like Trevor Lawrence just signed with the Chargers or whatever. And it's just people start going nuts. And then it's just, then the process of, oh, once one team starts like signing some people, it can build on that. And so you can have a team just like with college, you can have teams like have a huge recruiting year or a terrible one. And it's just like, how are you developing these dynamics? How are different players getting to know each other coming out of school? Because then it's, you could have the entire graduating class at Alabama, like all goes and plays for the Houston Texans or something. Like you have no idea. But then it's, but then it's dope because like people can continue those relationships 
from college or whatever. And then you get like more cohesion on teams that people are playing with their friends or playing with people they know how to play with. So like all around, I think the more you really explore it, like the more it's just like a really dope idea. And, and like you said, I think this is something that nobody thinks about because I think it's something that's like, everyone just takes as a given, like sports have drafts, but yep. it's just even the, but sports drafts in a lot of ways are as obsolete as like the selective service draft. So it's just, <laughs> Hey, let's just move on and let's get sports in the 21st century and let's do something different. And this is a really cool conversation. Cause it's, I think the more you keep having this conversation with people, especially in public is yo, let's just wake people up to this and say, Hey, there's a different way to do sports. There's a different way to do assigning people to different teams and how that process gets done. And, because even with athletes, they're just like, oh, there's a draft. I have to enter it. And it's like, what if you fought against that? What if you just rose up and just like got rid of the draft? Like, I think that's such a cool idea. Yeah, 100%. It's not only are these real implications of just justice and fairness and, and those kind of dorky things, but there's like a whole wide world of awesome sports and whatever the hell National Signing Day, the event at the college level when the recruits sign their letters of intent, whatever yeah. that would look like on the pro level would be a thousand times better. And you're right. We would have whole parades for signing, yeah. signing <laughs> kids and stuff. It would be fucking amazing. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. So it's not only just about just about like doing what's right. I think we really it's about opening our minds and, and thinking about sports in a different way. And I, I'll admit, I learned a lot of this, I think, or, or compared and contrasted watching European football, which is the other kind of big soccer, as it were, which is the other big world of sports that we have. And they do it differently. And just learning the lessons from there. And it, it does require a whole different mindset, but it's a mindset that's more open-minded to possibilities. Oh, totally. And then over there, you get into like relegation, right? You need that sub-league where it's, and really, if the NBA just took the D-League and made that like a relegation league, it was like, okay, we'll get rid of the draft and then shittiest record, you got to play in the D-League. That's the motivation, right? That's a, that's an anti-tanking mechanism if there ever was one, for sure. Nobody wants to be on the the D-League team. It's not even like Series A and Series B. It's, <laughs> you need more development. <laughs> right? Athletes have fought back before, and I wouldn't be surprising to anybody who's been listening to me talk for this time that... I would note that it's no coincidence that it were some white people in very unique positions of power that got to exploit them. The two famous, most famous examples I can think of rising up against the draft were John Elway in 1984, I believe, where John Elway like straight up said, no, I don't want to play for three different teams. And he was so good at baseball that they believed him. They thought he was going to go play baseball instead. And that's how he ultimately did got his draft rights traded at, at his discretion over to the Denver Broncos, and the rest is history. That was a great marriage that lasted his entire career. The other one, another guy who played his entire career with one team, go figure, was a guy by the name of Eli Manning. And thanks to that last name, Eli Manning was able to say oh, yeah. straight up, no, thank you. I would not like to play in San Diego because your franchise sucks ass. I'd like to go become the hero of Broadway instead. And two Super Bowls and many millions of dollars later, I think Eli will probably stick by that decision. Really, this is just being able to do this for all the non-Manning folk. 
who are going to come through the league, particularly <laughs> the black players who have, it wouldn't matter if they had a famous last name, they still wouldn't get that kind of luxury. There's all, it's already been done before. Of course, it was done in a way that was privileged and rare, but it, there's already a sign that, that this shit works and picking the team that you want to play on might actually uh, be better for both parties. It's like marriage. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Like you said, definitely been done before and it could be done again. And then it's just bringing it in, bringing it to the masses, bringing it to all the players, not just for the lucky few, which, yeah, I remember the the Manning, Philip Rivers thing going down and just being like, dude, it's San Diego. Like, come on. Like, you never have to. I love the Northeast, but man, San Diego, come on. Uh, <laughs> it's like, it's going to be so chill. It's going to be so fun. Come on. He knew, though, that franchise sucks, and that's why they don't, they're don't. they not even <laughs> in San Diego anymore. <laughs> yeah, at least if he had done that, I don't think Phil Rivers would have done, like, the helmet catch and all that stuff. Right. So, I think it would have been another Patriots Super Bowl. <laughs> that's a bizarro universe if I've ever heard one. <laughs> all the more reason to get rid of the draft. There you go. There you go. Frank, I have just a few questions left for you today. It's been such a pleasure. So I'd love to know, how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? I'm I'm a cisgender uh, straight white guy. So I fail a lot and they always tend to work out for me, Pacifico. So it's hard to pick (laughs) up the one. No, but I would say that the most profound failure in my life is like, I was completely disinterested in in like school when I was was a kid and all the way through high school. I just didn't see, I don't know. I straight out resented the institution. I thought it was all like just a scam and, and something for kind of dorky rich kids to get into and and always thought of myself as an outsider and someone that didn't belong in an academic setting so I barely graduated high school like with the skin of my teeth if they had counted all the classes I failed against my GPA I think I wouldn't I would have been ineligible but somehow they gave me my degree I stayed three hours on campus longer than all my other friends because I had to (laughs) do back homework to get a D in a class to graduate. That's how close I was to not graduating high school. And then went out into the world, just lost and aimless like a lot of young people are. And I'm very fortunate. I got a a lot of good support systems in my life and I'm a reasonably bright guy. So when I was able to see that there was a a place for me and that I belonged in kind of an intellectual setting, I was able to succeed there. But nonetheless, I think just being able to appreciate how easy it was for me to fail and how and to be able to identify with other people who struggle to identify with our really like affluent structures and things like school or corporate America or whatever it is, I really think benefit me and my perspective as I move forward. And it was a humbling experience because it was whack. It sucks to be poor and broke. And I was, I've been poor and broke most of my life. And that failure, that's the one that really sticks out to me as being the defining, the defining pivot and moment in my life. And I wouldn't have been able to be the success story that I identify as if I didn't have that failure first. Powerful stuff. So Frank, what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Ooh, that's good. That's excellent. All right. So I there's I used to be like really into self-help books and stuff when I was like a young cat. So I'll give like a shout out to them. The Way of the Peaceful Warrior and stuff. It's a mainstream popular one. You get a couple of those into your life. You get some positive motivation at a young age. I think I think that's great. A little dose will do you though. But Way of the Peaceful Warrior. 
And then lately, I've just been really moved by by kind of the books in in my ethos that that really challenge my assumptions and, and change the way I think about the world. So the two more I would want to shout out: everyone should read *The Color of Law* by Richard Rothstein. It's about how we use basically banks and governments use laws to to segregate our society, push black people out, not allow them to build wealth through home ownership, and it's the defining feature of what our society looks like today. So everybody should read that. And one more book. Oh, Our Prison Obsolete by Angela Davis. That's the, the godmother of abolition theory. If, if you don't know how you would even approach the idea of thinking about living in a world uh, that isn't so cruel, that doesn't throw people in cages, that record rates, go read Our Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis. Uh, so an eclectic and great list for sure. Love it. Frank, this uh, has been a fascinating and fun and lightning conversation. And so this brings me to my last question. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Mm. Damn, that's a great one. I can't think of a specific instances. Obviously, I've had people, I'm a very privileged guy. I've had people shower me with things, take me all across the world. And those certainly rank highly. I, I won't doubt it. But I would say the ones that stick with me the most is when I had a, a mentor, a law school professor, like just take time out of their life to to just listen to some crazy issue that I care deeply about and is driving me crazy. Something like fucking professional sports drafts and actually getting that validation <laughs> from somebody that I admire. And a lot of, on, on a couple of occasions, they've actually rode with me and we've made change or worked on something together with somebody that I really admire and look up to when they didn't have to do that for no money on their time, their precious little time and that type of stuff. I can't even imagine. I'm just so grateful for it. So every time that comes through. I oh, love it. It's a great answer. Thank you so much for joining me today, Frank. It was an absolute yeah. pleasure to get to speak with you. Likewise, my man. It's uh, always great to hear your voice. I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to, to hop on your platform and sharing again, what's a, a fun and wild and free-ranging conversation. Oh, absolutely. So today's episode was brought to you by marketingforattorneys.com. If you're an attorney looking to grow your law firm and ditch the crowded field of pay-per-click advertising, then visit marketingforattorneys.com to book your free consultation today. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high-quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash the LUE podcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Yes.